Hello, I'm John Charles, and welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Today, the Poison Pen's special guest is author Emma R. Album. I think I got that right, did I? No. Yes. <laughs> um, whose new book, Don't Want You Like a Best Friend, will soon be appearing in bookstores and libraries near you. It publishes in January. Before we begin, I'd like to let those tuning in know the Poison Pen does have copies of the book on order. We would be happy to reserve one for you or put one in the mail. Just give us a call at the Poison Pen or go online and you can take advantage of reading this truly fabulous debut. And now I'd like to welcome Emma. Hi, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to join us today. Um, my first question for you, like my first question to many authors, is what can you tell us about Emma before you became a published writer? Uh, I grew up in mid-state New York in the Hudson Valley, uh, went to Ithaca College for college. <laughs> um, I've been out in L.A. for just over a decade, uh, working my way toward becoming a writer for television. Um, I love books. I love TV. I adore musical theater and will chat your ear off about that, given even the slightest provocation any day. Oh. And I'm I'm a homebody and I love to bake. Um, given your interest in theater, was that a career option you wanted to pursue or is that just more of a hobby? I would love to write for theater. I'd love to write a musical. That's definitely on my, you know, end of the life bucket list not to do at the end of my life, but to do by the end of my life. Um, I got to work in theater. My first job, I worked for a playwright and I got to do, I think, oh. 10 theatrical workshops, which was really exciting. Um, but working for theater is something that I think I'm going to work toward. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, prohibitively expensive. And so the longer I go in my career, hopefully the higher up I am and the better connections I can have to get something going. Um, not being terribly familiar with it, I would think being a writer is challenging enough. Being a, play, a successful playwright must be like the next level above. Yes, I think if I if I had like one successful musical, that that would be that would be good. I could retire on that and be happy. <laughs> um, well, you came to Los Angeles to um, become a screenwriter. Um, when did you decide I want to write books? I want to write novels, or did you always want to? I've, I've sort of always wanted to. I remember trying to write a book when I was 13. Um, I was big into writing fan fiction for all of my adolescence and my early adulthood. Um, so prose was always something that I dabbled in. And I had written a bad novel, I think when I was 19 or 20, a truly terrible first, never, no one should ever see it. And the people that read it, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then about five years ago, I kind of sat back and thought, maybe I'd like to try writing a book again. And then just kind of fast forward to here and I fell in love with it all over again. And the landscape had completely changed from the time I was in college to now. So it's just really exciting to sort of dive back into everything books. Um, changed in what, in what ways or what way? In terms of, I mean, in terms of content, in terms of genre, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the queer romance just as a whole and queer books as a whole from mm -hmm. 2013 to now, it's it's a whole new world. And so coming back to it as an as a full adult, understanding the market, understanding the industry and going, oh wow, there's so much here was just such a delight. And I wish that had all been there when I was a young person. That would have been so helpful as a human. <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah. I think you're right. Um it's in interesting to see how once something becomes a success. Um, like red, uh, white, and royal blue. I think that I got the title right. Um, yes. And all of a sudden, 
it becomes it opens doors for more books in that. Absolutely. And and in all corners of every genre that there are queer stories being told in romance and sci-fi and history and, yeah. you know, regular fiction, literary fiction, it just it expanded and it broadened the types of stories you could tell. That's great. So you decided you wanted to write a novel um, again after your first step. <laughs> what was the path to publication like for Don't Want You Like a Best Friend? So I started writing Don't Want You Like a Best Friend in summer 2021. Um, and I finished that draft by the end of 2021. I got it beta read and I got it to my agent right before the spring in 2022. And she sent it out. And within about six weeks, we had offers. And that was, I had had a book on submission in 2021 that died a very slow death, as so many people do. So that was a complete 180 from where we were. And um, it just, it all happened, what feels to me at least, very quickly. And I feel very lucky and very honored that it happened that fast, because I know that's not everybody's experience. No, it does happen, but it's the rare unicorn in publishing. Um, what can you tell us about the book? Because your publisher or you or someone has come up with some very clever ways of um, marketing it, I guess I'd say. Thank you. I uh, Very much a team effort, all of us coming together. Um, so we pitched it to publishers as Lesbian Bridgerton Meets the Parent Trap. That was the set of comps um, about two debutantes who team up in 1857 to get their widowed parents together instead of finding husbands themselves and end up inevitably falling in love with each other in the process. Um, it is a friends to lovers story with a second chance romance happening in the background between the parents. Um, I wanted to play with all of the fun and wonderful tropes of historical romance, but twist them a little, make them queer, make them a little bit different, play with both the discomfort and the grandeur of the season in Victorian England, and just revel in all the ways that I could expand story. Because when you start with a season story, you've got a very good set arc, set pieces that you know are going in with the different events from the season, and that sort of four-month timeline. And that just was such a fertile place to set a story and to set a story about young women coming into their own, their own sexuality, their own sense of power, their own sense of purpose. For those that are listening and that might not be familiar with the concept of the season, can you kind of give us a little background on that? Uh, so the season was the, you'll hear about it as the social season and the marriage market in England. Usually we hear about it most dominantly for Regency and Victorian. Uh, sort of the span of the 1800s. And that was when all of the nobility came to London for the parliamentary season. And alongside that, there was this whole social season that happened usually about April to the end of July and into early August. And it included new debutantes being presented to the queen. Noble families would come and say, this is our daughter. She's ready for marriage. You presented her to the queen and then you took part in balls and teas and going to the Ascot races, going to various regattas, going to galas. And throughout that season, you hoped that your young progeny, both men and women, would make a match. It would be auspicious and they'd go forward and multiply and keep your bloodline running. It was a very uh, patriarchal, very mercenary um, focus, but hopefully there was also a lot of love and light and laughter throughout it as well. And that's what historical romances try to find in such a very rigid social structure. One of the things that I thought you did brilliantly was readers might say, why is it so important for Beth to 
make a match. Why can't she just fall in love with the person she wants, which is Gwen? But there's a real, um, real reason why she needs to get married successfully. That was particularly for Beth, who had, if, if they don't find her match in this season, they have no money. That is the, the very early conceit in the book that Beth and her mother have just enough money to do this season. And if they don't make a match for her, that's it. They're being kicked out of their home. They no longer own the property and that would be it. They'd be destitute or at the mercy of friends and family, a la like sense and sensibility. Um, and for a lot of young women in that season, that was the only path forward to security. Women, you couldn't vote, you couldn't own property. You, you were the property of your father and then the property of your husband. And so if you didn't have one of those two patriarchal figures, you were in real danger of destitution. There weren't a lot of jobs you could get, especially in the upper classes, because the UK was so class stratified that if you were really wealthy, there wasn't really, you couldn't just go and make money for yourself without losing all of your social status. And so it becomes this really gilded cage that you have to fit into to survive. Um. Why did you choose historical romance of all the romance subgenres? And as a sub to that question, why the Victorian era? I I find historical romance fascinating. I really like history. I like when writing, I get to do research and that research suggests story back to me. It, you know, I'll come up with a conceit, but then oh, well, they could go to ask it and they could go here and they could go here and this could happen and that could happen. And it really helps me structure. Um, but it also helps us reflect where we are now through the past. And you can talk about big social issues. You can talk about problems in society and love in a way that would feel didactic and I think pedantic today, that you can do it through the lens of the past and it's not beating you over the head so much, but it allows you to talk about all of that. Not to say contemporary romance authors don't do all of those things spectacularly, they do. I just have trouble doing them. So that's why I like the historical element. Um, and I picked the Victorian period uh, because there are fewer novels set in the Victorian period, particularly about the marriage market. And I just thought it was interesting and fertile ground to set a book. And I liked the hoop skirts and uh, the Matrimonial Causes Act was something I found early in my research. And I thought, oh, this is the perfect, this fits my story so well, I want to set it here and around this. And so that was how I picked my year. Um, what kinds of sources did you use for your research? And can you tell us a little bit more about the matrimonial causes? Uh, so I used tons of different databases. I, I will always recommend for uh, any author doing research, start with Wikipedia, go down to all of their sources, and then you kind of nest yourself source to source to source because each source will then, will then reference another source and reference another source. Um, I looked at JSTOR, I looked at a bunch of academic databases. Um, so it was a lot of sort of just falling down rabbit holes deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and the Matrimonial Causes Act was uh, an act of parliament that moved the jurisdiction of divorce from the church to the civil courts. And it was still incredibly difficult to get a divorce. It wasn't like you could just walk in and like you can today and say, I don't wanna do this anymore. You had to prove adultery or abuse or real hardship, uh, especially as a woman, to get divorced through the civil courts. But you had a slightly higher likelihood of that happening in the civil court than you ever would have had with the church. And so it was one of the first major steps toward women's liberation and women's rights. Um, and of course, it takes many, many decades from there and centuries 
to get to full liberation, but it's one of the first building blocks. It's fascinating because you do learn, even as you're enjoying the story as it unfolds before you, you mentioned hoop skirts. And I thought that was particularly fascinating because I never, well, why would I? I would never really thought about um, how they impact a woman's life in good ways, I guess, and in bad ways. Can you talk a little bit about fashion and how that played into your storyline? Absolutely. So before the advent of the the steel cage crinoline, which was a mass marketed, cheap, fast way to make a cage crinoline, at that period of time, most women were wearing five to seven or eight petticoats to create that big waist. And that's incredibly heavy. It's incredibly hot. It's incredibly cumbersome. Um, and so it really limited movement for women. And so when the cage crinoline came along, which is this series of interconnected hoops, sort of in, ratcheted up by fabric connected by tape and it creates the bell of the skirt, you would wear that and maybe one or two petticoats over it to create the line of your skirt. So all of a sudden you're light, you're airy, you can move. It's much easier to take care of your necessities like going to the bathroom, but there's an adjustment period to something like the hoop skirt, which knocks into things and gets crushed and, and moved. And so you have to get used to it to have the full utilization. Once you do, excellent, fantastic piece of fashion, but there is a little adjustment period. And I wanted to play with that, that those skirts were an incredible invention, but it's also gonna be a really awkward season when everyone in the town is like getting used to having these big bells. And if you go and do more research later into that century, into the 1860s, the hoops got comically big. And there were all these satire pieces about women and their huge skirts and men really hated them. But for a woman, it was great. It it gave you so much, but like all really intricate fashion, you had to pay a bit of a price for it as well. Hmm. Yeah, it also made me think um, the fashion aspect of your storyline a little bit further down the road, Amelia Bloomer. I never really understood why her bloomers were so revolutionary, but after seeing what women had to go through, I realized, okay, now it's the freedom aspect of it. Yeah. And even under the under the hoop skirts, they were starting to wear drawers, which would go down to mid-calf. Um, and that is that sort of precursor to bloomers and then to pants. And it gave you more modesty because, of course, with a bunch of petticoats, there's not a lot of risk your skirt's going to go up. But with the hoop skirt, you needed something to keep you modest below as well. And, yeah, it, women's fashion is a fascinating place. Um, every era I want to write in, one of the first things I'm doing is, okay, what were they wearing? What did they look like? What did it take to put this silhouette together? Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process because you come from a screenwriter's background. Are there tools that you've developed as a screenwriter you can use in fiction writing? Are they completely different processes? I know nothing about screenwriting, so give me the details. So with uh, screenwriting and then very specifically with television writing, one of the steps in the development process for a story is called the step outline, where you'll have a slug line, which denotes like the location of a scene. And then in the step outline, you do scene heading, summary of the scene scene heading, summary of the scene. And you'll do that for the entire episode. Um, you don't usually write out all the dialogue, but it's here's what happens, here's what goes on, and then the next scene. And those tend to be somewhere between like eight to 16 pages, depending on how detailed you are. And I've done that for pilots for almost a decade. So when I started moving back into prose, 
automatically I did that chapter by chapter. I would create an outline that just had, here's everything that happens in this chapter. Here's the next chapter and everything that happens. And so it creates this very, very detailed outline. So when I actually sit down to draft the book, I don't have any questions about what's going to happen. And the fun for me is, okay, how do I describe it? What's the dialogue? And that's the kind of discovery that I have in the process. But I do all of my story building before I ever sit down to draft the book. And that I think, you know, some people work that way. Some people are pantsers and they just start writing. And I'm in awe of that because I will just write myself straight into a corner <laughs> if I haven't planned anything. But that was the biggest thing I took from screenwriting was that particular style of outlining. Um, and then in the inverse, I often have to go back and punch up descriptions of my scenes because with screenwriting, I get to say like Victorian, you know, Hyde Park, Victorian England, some coaches, people on blankets, cloudy, and then you get to go on and that doesn't really work for a novel. So that's, I fight against that when I do my first draft as I go back to make things more descriptive. Has working as a screenwriter, do you think it really sharpens your skills at dialogue is that something that comes naturally to you because that that's the focus of television and movies or is that just something you've always been good at um i hope it's both okay uh, <laughs> i've always liked dialogue best that's something i've always leaned toward um i come from a very verbose family we like to banter <laughs> so i think that just came into my dna and then in writing scripts in studying screenwriting i hope to have sharpened my dialogue and made it punchier and more fun. And that's definitely my favorite part of drafting a book is the dialogue is the conversation. So they flow into each other. Right. Working as a screenwriter, do you work with other groups of people? Did that help you come to terms with working with an editor? Because as a writer, you're not just by yourself. There's someone down the road who's going to be working on your project. Absolutely. Getting, getting notes from critique partners, getting notes from producers, definitely helped me prepare to get notes from an editor. Um, I have a fantastic circle of friends who, with whom I exchange scripts, other working screenwriters. And then some of those people have now become part of my circle of friends with whom I exchange books. And that's been truly delightful to have a couple other people who are doing both. And then to have groups of people that do one or the other. Um, also just, I would feel bad sending people multiple pilots and a book or two a year and being like, please read this for me. <laughs> um, but those, those critique partners have really helped me learn how to give and receive feedback um, because it's it's such an art form to be able to critique works and especially at first or second draft stages to be giving useful feedback that's not prescriptive or trying to turn the story into your story but to help the writer make it the best story they can make it and so all of that helped prepare me to work with a professional editor for my books for the first time. And my editor, Sylvan Creekmore, is fantastic. And she gave wonderful feedback and was never mean or harsh or anything, any horror stories that you could hear. I have not experienced them. I had a wonderful time. Um, but certainly 10 years of being critiqued as a screenwriter helped before getting to novels. That's, yeah, that's important. Um... Writing historical romance, writing any kind of historical novels, how do you as a writer balance the need to evoke that historical period in all of its verisimilitude versus not giving the reader a history text? Is there a way that you can, can do both? Because a lot of times historical romances are criticized as being wallpaper. I, 
mean, I always enjoy all of those places that get critiqued. I, I love the history personally. I try when I am, because I write in a close third person, so everything is very much through the perspective of the characters. I'll try to focus on what could this person see? What could this person notice? What would a person who lives in this time period think about in the moment? And then once I've done all of that, then I step back and think, okay, what does the reader need to know that they might not already know about this historical period? And I give, I hope to give just enough detail that fits and suits the story without really going outside of it to give extraneous detail. What surprised you the most about the Victorian era after you've done your research? Um, they, they had a lot of rules. They had a lot of very particular social etiquette, but they were also people. I think we think of the Victorians as this very, very stuffy, tight, close in period of time. And when you get into firsthand accounts, when you see letters, when you look at, um, particularly, this isn't the 1850s, but a little bit later, when you see um, like the, the blurry shots of staged photographs, sometimes you'll see the before, the after, and they're laughing and they're hugging each other just like we would, that we see this very straight, all of the portrayals are very straight laced, but they were regular people just like us. And I think that, and they had the same passions and they had the same fervor. And I think that to me was not necessarily surprising, but the most joyful part of doing that research was people have always been people. And even when they were conforming to those very rigid social structures, they were still regular people who had all the same thoughts and feelings as we do. Well, that's a wonderful bit of insight. Um, I think you also are very good at illustrating something to readers who are not familiar with the Victorian era is that it was not monolithic. You have a very specific period of time that you're working with, but when you're talking about 60 plus years, there's a lot of changes going on. Absolutely, thank you. And absolutely, it. I, I picked one year and I tried to stay as close as I could to that one year. For some you know, story effect, there are little things that come in and out. Um, but yeah, every single year of the Victorian period was wildly different from the fashion to the laws, to the social mores. It just, it changed so rapidly and we think about time as slower and it definitely wasn't. It was just as rapid paced. Um, in some ways, as much change as we're experiencing now, they really experienced in the second half of the 19th century. Yeah. That's true. Um, you now have one published book soon to your credit. Um, I imagine you're working on something else. What have you learned that has surprised you the most about the business of publishing? What do you wish someone had told you before you started writing your first novel? How, uh, how elastic time feels within the process. Okay. I think you sort of it was a, for me, it was about, it's going to be about 18 months exactly from when we sold the book to when the book comes out. Um, and I knew going in, it would be 18 months to two years between selling and publication. I didn't really understand how often it would feel really fast, followed by these really slow fallow periods where you're rushing to get the book in, you're rushing to do edits, you're rushing to do proof pages, and then it's just all silent. And you have to find an inner peace and an inner sanctuary to just sit through the silence and know that it's going to start up again. And that when you have radio silence, it doesn't mean nothing's happening. Your team is doing so much behind the scenes 
And I think that's a thing that doesn't get talked about enough is that just because there's silence on the author's side does not mean my team works incredibly hard. They've been working hard 18 months straight and they sort of would pop up and I would get updates and then they'd pop down. And then every time I got an update, it was like, you've done what in the last month? Oh my God, look at that. That it just, you, you're only seeing part of the process and you're going to learn a whole industry. It's an entirely different thing to learn. Um, and I got some bits of that as advice, but I think living through it is very different than hearing about it. You mentioned um, your publishing team, and I think that's interesting because sometimes writers talk about their creation as being a sole product rather than something that others have helped along the way. Who are some of the members of your team? What have they done to help you along? Uh, so my fantastic agent, Stacey Testa at Writer's House, has been with me since day one. She read all, every draft. She gave input. She was there on every email. And if I wanted to write to her on the side and be like, I don't know what that means. Can you help me? She was there to sort of guide me and educate me along the way. My wonderful editor, Sylvan Creekmore, who got these books from the very beginning. She knew who everyone was. She knew exactly what we needed to do with all the storylines and how to help position the book and market the book. And then my amazing publicist, Jess Lyons, and my amazing marketing director, uh, DJ Sinkmeyer, are both fantastic. They also fully understood these characters. They know exactly where to place them. They know how to market them um, and get them on the right lists and get them at the right outlets and just how to help me hone the message and how as a team, we have one message and we're selling, we're all selling the same book. And I think that doesn't always happen. Sometimes authors have a different idea of what their book's gonna be. And from the very beginning at Avon, everybody just was completely on board. We've been selling the exact same book the whole time. And they're just spectacular. I really love working with them. And I feel so lucky to be part of this and to be at Avon. Um, it's really a romance author's dream come true. So I just, I feel very privileged to be in the position I'm in. I know my experience is not everyone's experience and I'm very, very grateful. Yes, it's, um, it can be a completely different experience for some writers and some other <laughs> publishers. We won't go into that. Um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Emma as a reader. Um, you're writing historical romance. Is that something that you've always read? Or did you read across genres? Who are some of the books that when you look back, you think those kind of nudged you into the idea of wanting to become a writer? Um, so I have always uh, loved historical romance. I've always loved historical books. Um, I remember picking up The Two Princesses of Bamar when I was about, I was at camp, so maybe 11 and really loving that. And that's that, I think it's 12th, 13th century. It's a uh, fantasy element, but it, it's set in a time period. Um, and I was very fascinated by history then. And then as I got older and grew up um, back, I guess this is like 2016, um, I was kind of genre agnostic as a, a much younger adult. I would read fantasy and sci-fi and romance and regular fiction, historical fiction. Um, and read a lot for work and for the industry to keep up with what's hot, what's being sold as an adaptation. Um, and then in about 2016, a friend told me to watch the first season of Outlander, which were books that my mother read when I was a young girl, but they were these huge books that just seemed so out of my reach. Um, and I watched the first season and immediately went out and got the book. And as soon as I read the book, I had this aha moment of, there's a lot in this genre. I've heard about this. And then I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And then as I got closer to the 2020s, there was also 
queer historical fiction that I hadn't been exposed to before. People like Kat Sebastian, Olivia Waite, um, Alexis Hall, Evie Dunmore and Amelie Howard were so kind and blurbed my book. I love both of their writing and their series and sort of coming into this newer wave. There are all of these classic historical romances and then there's this whole new wave of authors coming in in about the last 10 years and sort of seeing the full scope of historical romance and um, just delighting in it. But yeah, it it has always spoken to me from a very early age, I think. Um, yeah. um, you mentioned this and it's up to you how much you want to tell us. Um, are you working on something else? Can we expect another novel from you? So the second book in the Mischief and Matchmaking series, You're the Problem, It's You, comes out August 27th, 2024. So in just about nine months, and that follows uh, Beth's cousin James and Gwen's cousin Bobby in their season in 1858, as they try to find purpose and find love and just survive being young men in this very particular rigid world um, where being a queer young man is a hard thing to, to situate yourself with and find a world for yourself. And while they're trying to do all of this, they have no idea that their very mischievous and chaotic cousins have a whole other plan for what this season is going to be. And it's what happens. Um, so that is book two. We just wrapped proof pages on that. And um, early reader copies, I believe, have already gone out. So some people will have those in hand. And I'll be talking a lot more about that once the first book is out. Um, and then hopefully there will be many more uh, historical romances upcoming, and I should have more info about that within the next couple months, I think. Um, which brings me to my next question. How can readers learn more about you and your books? Are you on social media? Are you a, I'm going to say it right, book talker, book, whatever that is. Um, for a full and unvarnished look at all of my writing, you can follow me at, at Era of Emma on TikTok which uh, is my most chaotic and uh, most fertile social media ground. Um, you can also follow me at Era of Emma on uh, Instagram and uh, at ER Albin on whatever we're calling Twitter or X these days and on threads as well. Um, I also have a website, uh, authoremmaralbin.com. I do believe <laughs> I've never said that out loud before. Uh, but yeah, the Era of Emma, um, Handles are where I talk a lot about my book. I talk about baking. I talk about musical theater. Um, and on Book Talk, I've got a video a day, if not a little bit more. And then on Instagram, slightly more professional look. Not entirely, but a little bit. Does your love of theater kind of help you with these social media performances, we'll call them? I think so. Um, certainly. I'm able to memorize material more than I think I would have been if I hadn't done a lot of theater in school. Um, and I'm able to slip back into, okay, it's time, let's do some acting for you know videos with sounds and things. But I certainly spend a lot of time saying something and going, oh no, and going back. So it's not, um, I will never be a, a professional thespian. I don't think there will just be a love of it in my heart. I'll stay behind the scenes. Um, I can't believe how quickly we've run through our time, but before we go, you mentioned musical theater. I have to ask, what are your top three musicals? Oh, wow. Uh, number one is Into the Woods. Okay. Um, number two is Merrily We Roll Along, uh, and has been since before this revival, but it is spectacular. Go see it. And then, oh gosh. Uh, oh, I have to pick a third. Um, 
Sophie's I'll, choice. I'll, I'll go with Sweeney Todd. They're all Sondheim musicals, but I have a huge lexicon of musicals that I love. Those are just the top three at the moment. That's wonderful and great advice for someone looking for something to listen to <laughs> while reading your fantastic debut, Don't Want You Like a Best Friend. We've been so fortunate to have Emma with us. I'd like to thank her for taking time to share her thoughts about writing in her books. And for those of you tuning in, thank you for joining another author chat at the Boys and Pen Bookstore. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.